0: Well, good morning church. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. In March of 1933, at his first inaugural, Franklin D. Roosevelt said to a nation in turmoil because of the Great Depression, where unemployment had skyrocketed and all the financial systems had melted down, where there is a sense of listlessness and hopelessness in the culture he made this comment, this comment. He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And he went on and defined that by saying this. He says, this is the fear that is that nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes efforts to convert retreat into advance. Paralyzes efforts to re- convert retreat into advance and he was talking about you read the body of the speech that the United States was a strong and growing economic power and that our people were resilient and so Roosevelt was calling the people to trust and action and community and involvement Uh, I want to make the same plea today and but I don't want to based upon nationality or cultural superiority or economic prowess well, I want to say this, we are to be people who do not fear because God is God. And because we have a Savior, a Redeemer, a Holy Spirit who guides, and an Abba Father who watches over us. In Psalm 91, the psalmist is talking about some issues that are of horrendous and critical nature. And he says this, he says, there are people who will say that, that we should fear. But he says, he says, you shall not fear, verse 4. You shall not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. He says, but we're not to fear because, verse 2, I have said to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence He will cover you with his opinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Therefore, he says, you shall not fear. So I want to go to a passage of Scripture this morning that underscores the goodness of the Lord in watching over his people And it's Psalm 11. It's a very brief psalm of David. It is a psalm that has no rootedness in a historical event. It's a a general psalm. But let me read it. It's just eight verses. Listen. He says, in, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark. At the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes, see, and his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur. And a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So in the context of this psalm, let me mention three points and a couple of applications. The first is this. There is a present-day crisis in the life of David. He says very plainly, he says, the people are saying... Flee like a bird to the mountain. The wicked have fitted the arrow into the string of the bow, and they're getting ready to fire at us or shoot at us from the dark, shadowy places. The foundations are being destroyed. What can we possibly do? What's interesting in this psalm is it doesn't say the unrighteous were saying these things. It's very clear. I think that that it's it's very likely that these things were being said by men and women who consider themselves to be followers of Jehovah God. And yet in the midst of this crisis that is unnamed, they were saying, let's flee. Let's realize that we're being shot out from the shadows by people we can't see, therefore we have no hope, and the foundations are being destroyed. And David's response is this. God is my refuge. God is on his holy throne. And so we are to be people who... Trust in the Lord. In Joshua chapter 2, the children of Israel are getting ready to cross into the promised land. Joshua has taken Moses' place in leadership, and Joshua sends two spies to a great walled city that is a fortress called Jericho. And these spies go into Jericho to see how they can possibly take out the land or take out the city, and as they're there, they're befriended by a woman who is a a woman of uh, immorality. I can't say too much here because this is family worship time, but she was a woman who was uh, not known for her ethical behavior, and she befriended them, and she even hid them from the eyes of the troops that were trying to find them after they heard these spies were in the city. And after the spies have been sent out erroneously by her, or not the spies, the troops, she goes up on the roof and she talks to these two men who were followers of Jehovah God. And and she gives an incredible statement of faith. This is an amazing statement. Here's this woman who's been raised in a culture that that loves idols and loves idol worship and says God is undefinable. God is who you make him out to be by what you craft and what you bow down and worship. And yet she, she looks at these men and she says, we have heard. How Jehovah dried up the water of the Red Sea 40 years before. When you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the area. And as soon as we heard about this, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Jehovah, your God, he is the God of the heavens above and of the earth beneath and she says, when we heard about the living God and we saw our idol worship and the fact that we can't even name our idols, our hearts melted and we had no spirit within us. Now, I was thinking about that and I, think, I thought, this is, this is who we should think about. We, should, we live in a culture that's made idols in a, in a moment of cultural crisis. The idols don't work. In a moment of cultural crisis, we need to point people to the living God who is Jehovah, who made the heavens and the earth, and who reigns supreme. We should say, behold the greatness of God. So in this present-day crisis, and it is a crisis, we should be people who say, we will not fear because God is on his throne. Chapter 11 of Psalms, God is, verse 1, chapter 11, God is our refuge, we have a present-day crisis. We had a staff meeting the other day. Danny mentioned this. He said this is a, an, an unbelievable cultural crisis for our nation and for the church. And I think he's right. And the issue is how will we respond? So secondly, not only is there a, a present-day crisis, but, but there is a, in this passage, there are foundational principles. The psalmist says two things. He says, God is, verse 1, my refuge. And he says also, God is on his holy throne. He's in his holy temple. He reigns supreme. When the people said flee, arrows are flying, foundations are destroyed, David says, no, wait. God is God. He can be trusted. We can look to him. Earlier, Dean quoted a catechism question. I wanted to quote as well as Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, for, for those of you who are children, a catechism is, is really a, what we call a distillation of distillation, a, a biblical truth written down by godly people to help us understand what the Bible is saying in a small, concise fashion. So this is question one written by a, a group of guys in the 1500s. And it says this again, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death, both in body and soul, is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins by his work upon the cross and has freed me from the domain of the devil. And also, he so watches over me that not a hair can fall from my head without my father's knowledge. Therefore, everything must be subservient to my salvation. And so, so when people say that the foundations are being destroyed, we have no hope. Let me encourage you as the people of Jesus to say, there is a God. And he is our refuge. And he's on his holy throne in his holy temple and he rules the affairs of men and we can trust him even in this crisis and it is a crisis there's also a little clause here that is arresting it says in verse 5 he says the Lord Jehovah test the righteous he tests the righteous I think what that means is that, that he brings historical situations into our life that whereby we can prove the genuineness of our faith, whereby we can grow in the knowledge and understanding of Christ in a moment of crisis and upheaval. And I'll say right now that for all of us, this is a test of trusting the Lord and looking to Him. As I've thought about this, I just say that don't waste this opportunity Don't waste this opportunity of being isolated and and kind of segmented and socially distanced to to think and to read and to embrace your family, embrace your friends, and and to soberly worship with fixed joy in the purposes of God. Don't don't let it be wasted. There's a man named Malcolm Muggeridge who died several years ago. He lived in the 20th century. He was a British writer and satirist, he he, incredibly brilliant, worked for the BBC for years. At the age of 66, he came to faith in Christ. And later he wrote a book about Mother Teresa. Uh, He died at the age of 87. But, But a few years before he died, 12 years before he died, he gave an interview, and this is what he said. He'd only been a Christian for nine years. And he said this, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say that with all and complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction. Now, I think that's probably an overstatement, but what he's saying is that, is that, what Lewis says, God, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our everyday circumstances, but shouts to us in our pain and our cultural crisis that pain a cultural crisis is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. So so I'm, I'm saying, don't waste this time. Trust the Lord. Read the Word, think the Word, read good literature, pray together, reach out to people. I I was thinking about my lifetime and how there are certain key moments that I remember with clarity. I'm just gonna mention a couple of them. Anybody that is 63 years of age or older can tell you without hesitation where they were on November the 22nd, 1963. I was in the fourth grade. I was on a playground. My teacher raised her hand and said, we're going to go in early. So we went in and she said, please be quiet. And they turned on the public address system, which was a box in the room that gave us announcements. And they turned it to CBS News. And as we sat there, we heard Walter Cronkite say with a broken voice, we've just received word, that President John F. Kennedy has been declared dead at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas, the day Kennedy was assassinated. I can remember where I ate supper. I can remember what I did. It is etched in my memory. Fast forward. Something happened 34 years ago, late January, a Monday, after Super Sunday, 1987 or 86. The space shuttle Challenger took off 73 seconds into their flight. It exploded, killing all seven people on board, including a man named Ronald McNair from Lake City, South Carolina, who went to MIT and received a PhD in advanced physics, 35 years old, brilliant, one of the, part of the pride of South Carolina, dead. I remember where I sat, who I had lunch with, what I was thinking. I remember with clarity being at a staff meeting on september the 11th 2001 and somebody walked in and said you may want to turn on the tv because somebody has just told me that a plane flew into one of the towers the two towers twin towers and so we scrambled and turned on the tv and we saw the second plane hit and then we heard about a plane hitting the pentagon and then about a plane that came down in a field in Pennsylvania because of the brave people on board, and we realized that we were under attack. I remember where I was, who I sat with, and what my conversation that day, I remember it. I I believe, church, with great possibility that in the generations to come, for those of us that live long, they will say, where were you and what were you doing during the coronavirus cultural crisis in 2020? And they're going to say, how did you respond? What did you do? What did you think? And I want you to be able to say, as a follower of Jesus, we were careful. We were vigilant. We followed the government authorities' recommendations. But we ultimately said our confidence and our faith is in a living God who is triune and who watches over us knowing that a hair cannot fall from our head without his knowledge. So while the culture at large may have been saying out loud, the the foundations are being destroyed, we have no hope, they're shooting arrows from the dark. We said, no, hear me, God is our refuge. God is on his holy temple. And he tests and he stretches and he expands the hearts and lives of men and women. How did you respond? How will we respond? I read an article this week, an interview in the Atlantic Magazine, released uh, this past Wednesday, an interview article about a man named Francis Collins, who is head of the National Institutes of Health. Francis Collins, very very briefly, was raised in Virginia. Um, He went to the University of Virginia, graduated with honors, went to Yale, and received a PhD in Applied Physics and Chemistry. Then he went to medical school and graduated with honors at the University of North Carolina. He was head of the Human Genome Project. He is one of the celebrated scientists and thinkers in the area of genetic research and cystic fibrosis in our culture. He's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, a, A wonderful man, a very committed follower of Jesus. He speaks very boldly about his faith in Christ. He was raised in a non-believing home. In fact, he says his father took him to the Episcopal Church when he was young, and he said, I want you to go and join the choir because I want you to learn how to sing and read music, but don't believe a thing they tell you. And he said, I did. I learned to sing. I didn't believe a thing they told me. He was an agnostic, went throughout school, his PhD work, his medical work at Chapel Hill, And then he said he started doing his residency. And as he did his residency, he said, I I met people who were simple in their thinking, simple in their understanding, who had valiant faith and accepted life and death with a sense of joyful resignation. And he said, I wasn't prepared for that. In fact, he says this. He says, I was puzzled and unsettled to see how they approached something that I personally was terrified about the end of their lives. And he he talks about how there was one woman that he was taking care of as a young physician in his late 20s. And he said she reminded him of his grandmother. And he said, as I went to her room day after day, she had a severe cardiac disease and lived with incredible pain. And yet she would talk to me about her faith and talk to me about her commitment to Jesus. He said, one day she looked at me and she said, Doctor, I've I've talked to you about my faith, but I've never asked you this. What do you believe? And this is what Colin says about that question. He he says, He says, this simple woman asked a very direct and simple question, which was like a thunderclap. It was the most important question I had ever been asked by this simple woman who loved Jesus. And he said it made me think deeply, and I went to a local pastor and he gave me a little book called Mere Christianity. And he said, within the first 50 pages, C.S. Lewis had answered every question I had ever had about the existence of God. And he became a believer. Because a little woman in severe pain with a cardiac situation that that killed her looked at a physician and said, what do you think about eternity? What do you think about Jesus? And so so I look at this, I, I say, let us be people who seize the moment. Who, 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 who don't despair because we know that God is God and he watches over us. And thirdly, there is an ultimate hope. David says in verse seven, he says, the upright shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. And, and, and I read that and, and I go, here, here, here's David and we know the Old Testament saints saw the coming Messiah as revealed through a sacrifice system But they saw it dimly. And yet David could celebrate ultimate hope by saying that the righteous or the upright will see his face. He could write in Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he could celebrate this ultimate hope, this ultimate victory. And I say to myself, in the context of this day, in two thousand twenty. How much more should my celebration be because I live on this side of the fully revealed Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, the resurrected interceding Savior, the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church. We have a complete scripture. How much more should I say the upright shall indeed behold his faith? And then so as we walk through this, we say, there is an ultimate hope and is called an eternity that is glorious and wonderful beyond all expectation. John Calvin, very beginning of the Institutes, says there is a twofold knowledge of God. There is a knowledge of God, the great Creator who made the heavens and the earth, who blesses us with daily blessings, has given us colors and beauty and hope. To, just to live, he says, but then, and then he says, but, but then there is another knowledge, a deeper knowledge, where you are able to embrace the grace of reconciliation found through the work of the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, there, there is this knowledge, but then there is the profound knowledge of saving faith in Jesus. And I, I think, how, how much more should we rejoice and be glad with the ultimate victory that is ours? So, so, church, as we think about this, let me echo a few things you heard earlier. First of all, this is a moment of crisis. D- don't, in any way, minimize that. Therefore, we should be very prayerful. In this ultimate of crisis, our ultimate hope is that God is God, and that there is an eternity called heaven. Very basic. And in this ultimate moment of, or this moment of crisis. I say that we should be people who say, ultimately, fear will not reign, but faith and confidence because we serve a great God who is our refuge and who's in his holy temple. We can trust him. And and, and in the context of this, don't waste the opportunity. And I I thought about how to to get this across. So let me give you this application. This, This won't really... Resonate with some of you, but here it goes. A basketball season seemingly is over. March Madness will not happen this year. But let me give a basketball illustration. In basketball, if you have uh, there, there's a certain defense called a one three one zone, and it's really a, a defensive mechanism to guard against a team that has great outside shooters, but not great rebounding. That's beside the point. So I want us to think about one three one. Okay, here, here's the 131. One. Danny mentioned it earlier. One, every day seek the Lord. Every day bathe yourself in Scripture and pray. To take a portion of Scripture, pray it, think it, mull it over. Think it. Uh, before you turn on the internet and see anything about the coronavirus, before you turn on anything, before you go to any, any, place you 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 get your heart fixed on this it will encourage you it will build you it will make you worship and live out of the overflow of knowing jesus by the power of the spirit one three make three contacts a day we mentioned phone calls um, but intentionally make three contacts a day to people that you just want to say, how are you doing? What's going on? And, and let me just say this, as an old guy, I think phone calls are better than text. I'll take a text, but phone calls are good. It's good to hear a voice when you're socially isolated. So just take that for what it's worth. Make, make a list of people and just, and just contact three different people every day. And then one is is ask the Lord to allow you Every day to, to pray for, but also to, to to make a touch or reach out to somebody and say, can I do something for you? Uh, how can I pray for you? Or even say a good word for Christ. So one, three, one, just just every day as a church, if we could do that and and ask the Lord to, to use us. Um, so please know you're being prayed for and please know that we want to be the church and a. Different way the next few weeks. But, okay, well, let's pray. Lord, um, we come to you this morning realizing that there are many voices that are saying we should flee we're being shot at by adversaries from the shadows, that the foundations are being destroyed. And Lord, while we're concerned, and while this is a moment of crisis, please let us say with King David of old, the Lord God is my refuge. The Lord God is in his holy temple. He rules the affairs of men. So let us live with watchful confidence as we go forward. We trust you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we pray, again, as we prayed earlier, Lord, we pray for this morning, especially those who are on the front lines and exposing themselves to all types of people, many of whom could be carriers of, of this coronavirus, we pray for our physicians, for our health care providers, that you would surround them with your delivering power, that you would sustain them in their weary task that while most of us are socially isolated and told not to go out, these, are, these men and women are going out every day and they are pushing it hard every day. So God, sustain, build, encourage, fill them with the knowledge of Christ. I, I pray especially for our physicians who know Jesus so they can speak the word of Christ to those around them. Our health care providers speak the word of Christ. In a culture where people are seen that idols just don't make it. And we pray for the peoples of the world, Lord. We think of nations that are going through incredible suffering, whether it's uh, Italy or, or Spain or Iran or the ravages of China, that, that, Lord, your church would be bold and gracious and gospel-centered as they speak the word in these cultures. So, God, have mercy upon us. Let us grab this moment and live in such a way that we honor you and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. May your kingdom come, almighty God, in the midst of this crisis. In Jesus' name, amen.